let's turn to Ephesians. We're going to go back to chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading in verse 5, and tonight we'll read through verse 8, or 9, I'm sorry, verse 9. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, 5 through 9, even when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The word there in is through in the King James, but it's actually in when you look at Greek. So it's his grace, his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved, not or through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. So I want to talk about this kindness, this grace. Um the fact that it is not of ourselves, it is the gift of God tonight. And, uh, you know, in the, in the last session, we focused our attention on the reality of exactly what God's grace has, has exacted toward us or, or brought toward us or brought us into, we can say, and how that once and for all work of grace has ushered the soul into the fullness of heaven itself. And in this lesson, I want to move a little forward, a little bit forward, and, and probably begin that in verse 7, when he says that in the ages to come, he would show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. And there's been a lot of speculation through the years of what that means. A lot of people have you know, assumed that that means in the future that you know, all of that and different things. But basically what it's showing us is that this great salvation that we've come to in Christ, this, this work that he has gathered us and by grace saving us, raising us up together, this wonderful richness of mercy that has been extended toward us, that God is going to, in the successive ages of time, make known to us, make known to us, to his church, his body, the true kindness that he has extended, the grace that he has given to us. That's such a good, a wonderful thing to realize that through the ages of time, we're going to be knowing and realizing and having displayed in our very soul the immensity of these riches of his grace and the kindness that he has shown to us. And it's the kindness that he has shown to us, not through Christ as a medium, but in Christ as the place in which we abide, in, in Christ where this is actually so and actually real. It is in that one that we will forever be beholding and knowing and realizing just the immensity of this work of love that is being wrought in us. Um. And it will take just that. It will take the ages to come. It will take eternity for us to, for God to expound in our hearts the fullness of his work and what he has done. And 
I wish we would just get a hold just of that concept, just that idea to understand how vast this is, how big this is, how one man engulfs all eternity, how one man takes into himself the fullness of everlasting to everlasting and how that is the one who abides in our soul. And it's all ages we'll be knowing that one. In fact, it's a beautiful thing when you see this, that the, because when you look at the uh, ages to come, it's actually a word, the, the word ages there is aeon, which, which is ages as it's used many times as translated world, where it says he came at the end of the world. It's actually the end of the age. He came at the end of the old covenant age. Um, to put away sin once and for all. But the to come is an interesting uh, phrase because, of course, when you read this in most translations and you read this, the ages to come, you're going to assume that means that it's something coming one day. It places it into the future. And most see this as God will demonstrate this in the future in the world, even would say to the whole universe, it's going to be displayed and all this stuff. Well, let me ask you this. Who in the world can recognize the kindness of God that has been extended toward his body? It is, it is of such a nature and such a, such a construct that none, not even those who are in Christ can know it unless God makes it known in the soul. So if he's to show the whole world or the universe the kindness that he has shown to us, what, what does that mean? What does that matter? It, because that's not what it is at all. It is God showing to the body, the ones who are found in that son, God showing to them who are in that son, the fullness of that son. And that's what, you know, God, that's what Paul writes and, and, and prays for them that they would come to know the length and the breadth and the depth and the height of the love of God that has been extended and made manifest toward us. That is an eternal work of the spirit, opening the eyes, enlightening the soul, flooding it with his understanding of reality as it is, because what we, this is the beautiful part, that it's not just the successive ages in time that he's going to, um, you know, make this known. What we will be knowing for eternity has already come to us in the present. In the present moment, we are partakers of that eternal reality and what will eternally be unfolded to us by the work of the spirit of truth. And that's what it means. If you look at the verb to come in the Greek, it actually is in the present tense, according to the syntax notes. It is in the present tense. And that makes... The ages to come, not something yet to be, but that the successive ages to come will be an, an unfolding of the age that has arrived. The fullness of the ages, you could say, that has arrived. And we'll read that verse in a moment. Paul's already said that in the first chapter of Ephesians. So this makes perfect sense when you see it in the light of the context of the letters, and especially when you take a peek back at First Corinthians, or, or not First Corinthians, Ephesians chapter one, um, 
I'm going to start in verse 9 here, and I'm going to read this from the Kenneth Weiss translation because I, I like the way he expounds it. He says, uh, resulting in the praise of the glory of his grace. And if it, and that's the thing. He's, he's expounding so greatly and so weighty on the grace of God. It's almost as if it, many times he runs out of ways to describe it and ways to explain how great it is. And he uses like hyperbolic language, you know, the excellency and the whatever. It's just the ways that the language can grasp something that really words can't grasp. He's trying, he's trying to express it in all of its, you know, beauty, but it's difficult when all we have at our disposal are words that just fall short. They fall out your mouth and seem to fall to the floor. It doesn't seem like they have much meaning behind them. So, it's 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 hard for just words to be said and, and and all of that, but Paul tries in these words to just expound on how wonderful it is. So he says, resulting in praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved, in whom we have we are having our redemption through his blood, putting away our trespasses according to the wealth of his grace which he caused to superabound unto us in the sphere of every wisdom and understanding, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to that which seemed good to him, which good thing he purposed in himself with respect to an administration of the completion of the epochs of time, which are the ages or the, uh, the times, the seasons of time, to bring again to their original intended state all things in the Christ, things in heaven, things on the earth, even in him. So when we're talking about the age that is now upon us, and this is 2,000 years ago when Paul's writing, this is an age that just grows in its in its measure. This is this isn't you could say it's like the universe. It is there's no end to this age. This is an age that just continually, one of the word studies says it's ages that just pile upon itself, piles upon itself. And that's a way to say it. It's, it's an eternal age that is dawned in the coming of Christ. It's a, it's the fulfillment of an administration and an anticipation of an old covenant, you know, one who is under the old covenant. There's that anticipation under that first administration waiting on the ministry of God or the administration of God that will finally bring to completion all that that's all that the that age made promise of and prophesied and made as an expectation for something to come and Paul is telling them the reality that has been a promise to you has now come in this present time to be fulfilled and God will throughout the successions of that eternal age make known unto us the kindness and the riches of the grace that he has bestowed to us. This is what God will do for us. This is the, this, if you want a journey, <laughs> you want a journey in Christ. That's the journey. It is God making known unto us something he has accomplished, making known unto us the superabounding excellency of his grace and his mercy and his kindness. 
that he has given and shown to us. So when he speaks of the epochs of time, the word epic there actually means a, a period that is set off or begins by a significant or striking change. Something has changed. There's a change that's happened to bring about another epoch of time. Well, that's the change. The change from the first to the second, from natural to spiritual. That's the change. And for those still waiting on another change, there's not another change to happen. The change that God was after came at the coming of Christ. And Christ's coming changed the whole thing, changed it all. It brought that striking series of events, as this commentary also says, where now he fulfills one reality and brings an altogether eternal reality in. And it is that eternal reality that God desires and will forever make known to his church so that we would know what he has done, that we would come to see the greatness of the kindness that God has exercised toward us. That's what I cry out for. I don't come to God anymore and make me something. Help me be something. Because I know the change has already taken place. I pray for God to show me. Show me the change that you are. Show me the reality that you are. Show me a salvation that is of you and not of me. Show me truth defined in the simplicity of a perfect life. I don't pray to be perfected. I don't pray for all these things. I desire to know the perfection God in his infinite wisdom and kindness has shown to us. That's the prayer of the saint. That is the prayer that the church should have, that we may know the head and grow up in the head in all things. So Paul is describing how God demonstrates to his church, to those who are in Christ, the full scope of his kindness. For those of us who are now in the age that has come upon us, the fullness of the age. And again, that's the age that culminates God's will. That's what we've come to. In uh, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, he says, the coming of Christ is the moment which fills up or completes Every appointed season, every festival, every holy day, all of those things, he fills it up. He fills it up to its fullness, and there's not another spot left for anything else. Nothing lesser can approach the ground that he's on. This is something absolute and sufficient. I don't, that God has nothing else to give to us except a fuller view of what he has given to us. And then we move on to what he says. That he would show the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. This is the same thing as his power that has been made manifest toward us. It's the same thing there. 
And then in verse 8, and it's a beautiful thing because he continually repeats himself in these chapters. He continually reiterates these same things. By grace you were saved. By grace you were saved. This is not of you. This is a work of God. And then in verse 8, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. I want to talk about that. See, in this statement, I think we have we get a glimpse of something of the nature of faith and grace. And I think they're both in salvation as the result of that, but I think they are described in this phrase, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God. See, nothing, nothing having resulted in our being brought from death to life, if you keep the things of Ephesians, what we've been reading in these verses, nothing of receiving the inheritance, nothing of being blessed with all spiritual blessings, nothing of being accepted in the beloved, nothing of being holy and without blame before him in love, nothing of any of that is of you. None of that is of yourself. None of that is due to you in any way. It is the gift of God. That is why God had to superimpose himself in a situation that you had no hope in. You are dead in sin. This is the whole chapter two. He came to the dead. He came to those who were incapable who had no hope of release and salvation and deliverance. He came to those who were unclean and condemned. Thank God that he brought us into something not of us. That he ushered into the soul what is not of ourselves. That is the salvation we have. And this is the salvation God makes known to us. The problem is... That is not something most people want to see or most people want to hear about any to, to any degree. There's a scandal with regard to the grace of God. It's a scandal. And the scandal of grace is that it bestows to us what needs nothing from us. It bestows and gives to us something that needs nothing from us for its presence, for its efficacy, and for its persistence. It doesn't need us for any of it. It is a gift given of God. It is from God himself as its source and its only source. It doesn't depend on you. You and I depend on it. And God, by his mercy, has given to us what we were and remain dependent upon, his mercy. New every morning. Why? Because they never change and they're always present. Just as valid as they were the day before and just as valid the day after. And it will never change. 
you are not big enough or strong enough to change that. That consistency, that per persistence, that perpetuity belongs to God. And it has nothing to do with you or me. And that's the scandal of the grace. That's part of what Paul talks about in, in other many places when it's called a stumbling block. That's a scandal. That's in the Greek, scandalon, which is where we get the word scandal from. Christ is a scandal. He's a stumbling stone. He's a rock of offense. That means scandalon. That's, that's a scandal. And that is the work God has brought us to, something that to the natural mind is indeed a scandal. It can be a stumbling block. Why? Because again, as I said, it, it bestows to the soul something that doesn't need anything from us. Something that doesn't depend upon us, but provides to us what we are fully and everlastingly dependent upon. And he says the same thing in Galatians 5 and uses this word that we just talked about, scandal on in the Greek. Uh, and he says, for in Christ, and listen to this. This is verse 6 of Galatians 5. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything nor, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. I love that. Your faith doesn't even work. <laughs> faith doesn't even work. It's not even effectual unless it's connected to the love of God. And that's not your love, by the way. That's God's love made manifest toward you. Faith has to have something as its source. And faith has to be work in accordance to something. I, the faith that saves the soul from death unto life is a faith that has to be has to have a source called the love of God to even work. That's why it's grace through or by faith through or by grace through faith. Faith has to have that mercy to work upon. It has to have something greater than itself to trust in. And that's what we come to. We have a greater reality to trust in. The problem is we miss sight of that. We lose sight somehow on the greater reality to trust in. We lose sight of the fact that we have nothing sufficient in ourselves. Our sufficiency is of God. So Paul goes on and says, you did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? Because this persuasion cometh not of him that has called you. What is the persuasion to go back or to go to the law to find something? To supplement what may be lacking? They say Jesus is fine, but he's not quite enough. Anybody that tells you that, what are they doing? That persuasion doesn't come from the one that called you in the grace of God. That persuasion does not come from him. And that has hindered so many people that are running the race because they're told, get your shoes on and run harder, <laughs> right? This race is looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher. It's not much of a race when you already see the one who wins it. When you already understand the winner is already chosen. In fact, Paul would say, run is one who has already won. 
the race. Why? Christ is the victor. We're not here trying to outrun one another. That's not the point. And I've heard people preach that, right? We always, we're, we're trying to outrun our, one another with that. What does that do? That causes us to judge one another against one another. We compare ourselves among ourselves, and that's not wise. Anything that would bring your heart away from the faith that works by love is not from him. That persuasion is not from him. And then he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little piece of that will corrupt it. Just a little piece of you, just a scant touch of you and me will spread like wildfire and permeate the entirety of the concept regarding salvation. And that's what it's done for so many people. Just a scant piece of you and me are putting them back into the picture. It has permeated the whole, their whole concept of their salvation, their standing with God, their fellowship with God, where it's no longer not I, but Christ. No longer he liveth in me, not I. Of God and not of us. No, it's a little bit of us. Well, the little leaven leavens the whole thing. Because what we've done, your salvation in that light becomes a whole lot less secure in your mind, in your understanding, not in reality, but in your heart. And it causes you to work. Why? Because we have introduced variables that are not valid variables. There are no variables in him, no shadows of turning, right? So he goes on here and says, I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will be no otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you, that's the ones that's trying to bring them to the uh, law, shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. And, and I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? Then is the offense, there's the word scandal, of the cross is ceased. I would they were cut off who trouble you. And that's a play on words in verse 12 there that Paul uses by saying, you want to circumcise something? Don't circumcise your flesh. Circumcise these people from you. I wish that they were circumcised from you who trouble you. Because they're bringing something into the camp. They're bringing leaven in. They're bringing the leaven of the Pharisees into this and trying to tell you Jesus is not sufficient. The gospel declares to you he is all sufficient. The grace of God in the midst of your weakness, because your weakness is always there. And the work of God is not to help you fix your weaknesses. It's to be the strength in the midst of it so that you could do as Paul says and say, so when I am weak, I am strong. Therefore, I will glory in my weaknesses because he tabernacled upon me. That's the prayer God didn't answer. Take this away. Take this away. Fix this. Fix that. No, my grace is sufficient. Do we not understand the whole matter of the law? I could go into where uh, Haggai asked the priests about the holy things and the profane things according to the law. And he speaks of one who, if he has holy meat, carrying it in his 
uh, skirt and he says, if that touches the bread and the wine and those offerings, does that make them holy because that's holy? And he says, no. The vicinity of the thing doesn't make it holy. But he said then, if someone is unclean ceremonially by touching a dead body and they touch that thing that is holy, does that make that thing unholy? And the answer of the priest was yes. Why? Because one touch from the corruption of man corrupts the whole thing. One, one of the commentaries I was reading, he says, you know, one, one drop of, you know, you could say one drop of sewage will corrupt an entire vase of water. But it doesn't matter how many drops of water you put in sewage, it's not going to clean it up. It's Problem is, that's what we think salvation is. We think salvation is God putting multiple processes. That's our thing. He puts multiple uh, drops of water on us trying to clean the garbage out. The thing is, he changes the whole thing. He changes the nature of it all. He puts he, There's a new bottle and new contents. It's not him trying to clean the sewage out of it by putting good stuff in it. It's him taking away the whole thing, starting over with the only good thing there is. That's salvation. Okay. Has the grace of God, has the kindness of God, the, the matter of the law, what is it wrought? Here's James chapter 2. Here's the real extent of it. James chapter 2, verse 10. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and offend in one point, he is guilty of it all. Do we not realize that's the standard? That's the standard. If you keep the whole thing and you offend in one piece of it, you're guilty of the whole thing. What that means is we can't brownie, we can't pick the pieces we want and pick the pieces we like and apply that to ourselves and say, I think that'll be my salvation. That'll be my Christian living. That'll be the way I do it. And yet you miss this whole thing over here. But guess what God did? He brought the whole thing into your soul already fulfilled. He brought the law fulfilled in us by bringing into us the life of his son. Guess what that means? Holy and without blame before him in love, not guilty. Because guess what? We missed a whole lot more than just one point of the law. We missed the whole thing. The law was not to give us goals. <laughs> the law wasn't a goal to achieve. It was first a testimony of perfection that was out of the reach of men and a prophecy that that perfection would come and dwell in me. So when people read things like this, whosoever keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, most people get condemned by it, but not when you realize that God has ushered into your soul the one life that does not miss anything. He doesn't offend. He, he doesn't offend in any point at all. Why? Because he's the very substance 
the law testified of. He's the perfection the law presented. And he's that perfection fulfilled in us by the work of another, by the work of God and his grace alone. I mean, has the grace of God, and this is the thing I think about often, has the grace and kindness of God that he's addressing here in these verses left all for us one thing, left out one thing? Is there one part still missing? Then how did this happen? When did it happen that it's, no longer one piece missing, nothing missing at all, according to the righteous of the law. Well, it happened because the power of another, the power of God superimposed himself toward us and did this for us because for us, it was impossible. That's the whole thing, right? He went away sad. And they asked Jesus, well, if this kid who did the law and did, did all of this, if he can't be saved, who can? The answer was, with man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. Why? Because with man, it, it's all about, I did that already. I did that. But see, our did that has to come head on, hit the wall of what can God do that I can't. And that's what salvation introduces to the soul. The thing that man can't, in all of his doing, can't do. And that is change that soul's makeup from death to life, to bring it from sin to righteousness from condemned to no condemnation because you're in the beloved. Only God can do that. Your I did that can't touch that. No matter how well you did it, as Paul said, touching the righteous of the law, blameless. But what was he? Dead in sin. That same moment when he felt exalted and exhilarated because of all that he did, and he was above his fellows in the law, in the teaching and understanding of the law, application of the law, so much so that he was, he was ecstatic about going out and persecuting the church. And yet he was dead. Dead in sin. What did God do? God delivered us from such death. He came to the dead. He came to the bones that were dry and said, Live, live by me, leaving nothing out. Galatians 3, we've talked about it so often. Verse 22, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith, this is the same faith he talks about in Ephesians 2, in Christ might be given to those who believe. And before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith should be revealed. Now, look at the nature and characteristic of this faith. 
when writing of the faith that was coming, Paul is referring not to the method of believing. That's the thing. He's not talking about a method of believing, so you got to believe right. He's speaking of the object and the substance of faith coming. Because in that context, he's talking about Abraham's faith. When Abraham's faith comes fully, when that faith that Abraham had, which was always toward a seed who was coming, when that faith comes and we receive the seed of promise, then we are no longer under the law. We have been born of an incorruptible seed and therefore the law has no claim over that which is of incorruptible nature. The law can't condemn that perfect life. See, that's what the grace of God does. That sounds too good to be true. That sounds ridiculous. Almost foolish. How good is this? How good is it that the people that work 12 hours one day get the same penny as those who work one hour in a day? It's only those who think their work and their labor before God meant anything that come and complain about receiving a daily wage. Because they thought because their labor meant something to them that it should mean something to the one that had promised them a penny. And the ones who worked an hour were grateful and came gladly and received the wage that was given to them because their work, they knew, didn't earn them this. So the ones who complain, he says, is it just because I'm that good? Is that why <laughs> you're mad at me? Because I'm good. I'm kind. I have no respect of brother, no respect of people. Your labor is not the thing I'm after. Your receiving of the wage and your entering into the vineyard is what I was after the whole time. See, we, we, we mix it all up. We think our part is the important part. God's part is the only important part. I mean, when we look at the faith of Abraham and this conclusion of the faith of Abraham, I was just reading through these verses. And when Romans 4 begins to talk about, as we said, when Romans 3 is saying there is none righteous, no, not one, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and immediately begins to talk about a faith that fulfills the law, doesn't, doesn't uh, forfeit the law, but the law of faith is the law by which this is, this is summed up and concluded, not by law of Moses. That's the law of faith that keeps all, all boasting of men put aside, right? It's the law of faith that looks to the, to, to the perfect power of another man instead of yourself. And that's why he goes immediately into looking at Abraham in chapter 4 and says, I'm going to read most of chapter 4 here, so bear with me, okay? Because we're going to talk about each of these verses. Because I'm going to conclude with a portion that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians that just blew my mind the other day when I ran across it. I'd forgotten it was even there. But man, this is the most perfect 
description of our salvation. And it's the most perfect description of the basis and ground we stand upon in glorying and rejoicing and boasting. So in Romans chapter four, verse one, what then shall we say was, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. Abraham was justified by, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Look at that. If this was from, if this was about anything he did, any works or labors that he had, he had, he had something to boast about, but not before God, because what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accredited, imputed, or counted to him as righteous. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift. Remember, we just said it's not of yourself. It is the gift of God. That's why I'm looking at these verses. To the one who works and thinks his labors are important, his wages are not looked upon as a gift, but as his due. He's due that. He's worked hard for it and warranted such a payment. To the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. There's the contrast. Those who work and think their work makes them do a payment are those who do not work because they know their work is in vain and they just fully trust in the one who justifies the ungodly. You see that? That sounds like a paradox. That's a contradiction. He makes just those who are not just. He makes righteous those who are not right. And we're going to see the same thing said in another phrase here in a moment. That one who trusts God in the midst of such contradiction in himself, that faith toward God is counted as righteous. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. In this blessing then only for the, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. But how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had already by faith while he was still yet uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. That's us. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised, meaning those who were circumcised would follow the lead of their father Abraham and come to find faith instead of circumcision as the true righteousness or way or means of righteousness. 
because again, their father, the one they boasted in, his righteousness came to him by God before he was ever circumcised. He just trusted. And we're going to get more into that trust. For the promise to Abraham and his seed that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it, if it is the adherence of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to his offspring. Do you see how it's guaranteed? It depends on faith and it rests on grace. Therefore, it is guaranteed. The moment it rests upon you and your works, there's no guarantee to it. That's why people that I have known forever, they die still wondering. If they made it, there's no guarantee for them. Why? Because it was all about them. Their, their Christian life, the way they did it, the way they lived it. What did they do right? What did they do wrong? A little leaven leavens the whole thing. Problem is, and the sad part is, that that misunderstanding, the leaven of a Pharisee that comes to you and tries to turn your heart away from the simplicity of Christ and the sufficiency of his indwelling presence and how he's brought you to the fullness of reality itself and just calls you to see the reality to which you've come and grow up in it. The sad part is that hasn't changed one thing about the reality in which you abide. That hasn't changed one thing about your soul's fellowship and standing before God. But what it has done is caused your heart and your mind and your actions and your pursuits to be deviated from the simplicity of who he is to trying to fix who you are. And that's a shame. It depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on the grace of God and therefore be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead. Listen to these words. This again, this is a beautiful parallel with Ephesians chapter 2 who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's a crazy phrase. We'll talk about that in a moment. Let me read these verses. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he fully considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was a hundred years old. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, notice that King James says he didn't consider it. Every other 
literal version says, yes, he fully considered. But yet he did not waver. Why? Because his confidence was not in his ability. It was in God's. That's why this is written. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Man, that's a big deal. He glorified God even when he didn't have a seat. He glorified God in the midst of his deadness and his wife's burial. Why? Because he's fully convinced that the God who made that promise was the only one possibly able to keep the promise he made. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteous. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone but for ours also. It is counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, the Lord Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification or our righteousness. And I read this because again, it parallels with what we've been looking at in Ephesians 2. And it demonstrates the fact that God intended and carried out that intention but he didn't do it because of man's ability, whether Jew or Gentile. He didn't bring them into the body because they had something to offer. He knew when he called us, we had nothing. See, the theme of this portion being the same as, uh, you know, Paul's statement in Ephesians 2, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. He gave glory to God. He boasted in God. It is not, he trusted fully that the God who made the promise was the only one capable of carrying out the promise. This is not of you. It is God who has bestowed it as a gift. God comes to raise to life. Here's the thing. God comes and raises to life those that were dead in sin and trespasses. This is echoed in the grave state in which Abraham found himself when God made him the promise. And consider this. When you look at Genesis and Abraham's, you look at what he's just said in Romans 4. This is what I want you to consider because I thought about this a good while the other day. God approached a man who was first married to a woman who was barren. You would say, God, you could have chose better. No, he chose what he wanted, but first of all, he chose a man and made a promise to him regarding a son when that man that he called, he knew, was married to a woman that had a barren womb. And yet, the promise that God made was directly related to that specific area of weakness that they had. To me, this is vital to understand the wonderful work that God had to do, to bring to pass what he brought to pass. He had to overcome the deadness, the sinfulness of both Jew and Gentile, no matter who they are. a work that culminated and concluded with their sharing in the life and body of one perfect man. 
in that one man, one man raised and glorified all of their weaknesses, all of their impotence, all of their barrenness is overcome. They become dead to the imprisoning power that held them. They become dead to the thing that made them barren. Here's the, here's the point. This is nothing of us. See, when that, here's the thing, when that statement, not of us, it is the gift of God, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. When that statement becomes mediocre and meaningless to you, when it rings hollow, when you hear it, instead of like something leaping inside of you, then repent. Repent and lean once again upon the excellency of the kindness of God. Because that's the most amazing wonder, the most glorious miracle that has ever been wrought. See, our first effort, our first reaction is to look for methods to produce something similar to what God wants. Similar is not substantive in God's sight. And that's just, you know, the law was similar. The law was a reflection, but it wasn't the reality. Similar doesn't cut it. God doesn't want similar. He wants the substance. That's why he doesn't teach you how to be similar to Jesus. He gives you Jesus. He's not trying to make you look similar to the righteousness he, he knows to be. He brings into your soul the righteousness in its perfection. Because what God promised and what God intended for the soul of men to have as its possession was of such a nature that God only could bring it about. And you would notice when God approaches Abraham, he also waits. Now, we know what Abraham did because he looked for a method, right, to do it and make something similar. Well, the similar Ishmael was not Isaac, was it? He's a son. Yeah. But you notice when it came to actually bringing about the promise, God waited until both parties were physically incapable of doing anything productive toward meeting that intention. Now, for me, that's beautiful. Can we not just rest in the assurance that that is God's design? That is God's doing? And that your works, my works, are not only not necessary, but they are an affront and an abomination before him. Because similar is not substance. And all you can bring about at your best is similar. But this is the God Abraham was dealing with that brings the dead to life, and cause those things that be not as though they are. And what I want you to notice is that in this, if you look at it in the Greek, it's interesting, that be not and though they are, things that be not and though they are, you would think at one time this was present and past, this is present now, and this is past now. 
but they are both simultaneously in the present tense. And what that means is the things that are not and the things that are simultaneously exist. So man's, here's the thing, man's innate weakness, barrenness, the impotence he actually has before God, his insufficiency, his incapacity is still there. It's just overcome and overruled by the constant abiding presence of the sufficient power of God's grace. And I said this this morning, but keep this in mind. Abraham and Sarah, 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 that's, that's the South Carolina way I said, Abraham and Sarah were not restored to be able to produce another child after Isaac. God didn't heal them and say, oh, your womb's no more barren and you're, you're like a 40-year-old now or a 20-year-old. Boy, you could have all the babies you want. No. Why? Because God already achieved his intent. The promise was realized in the presence of the son that God provided. I will come and she will have a son. I can say that for those of us who have had this miracle wrought in us, this grace bestowed within us. God has achieved his intent. The promise is realized in the presence of his son within us. But that does not fortify us to now be able to produce something further or produce something else or to be strong enough to be it or live it or do it. We remain fully at the dependence upon the one who made the promise to be the fulfillment of it in us, to not only demand righteousness, but be that righteousness he demands in us. Abraham's body was just as incapable after Isaac than it was before, and her womb was just as barren as before. That's called, that's called grace. And that, in the midst of that, in the midst of that continuing weakness, in the midst of it, there was a man who trusted and believed and was confident, unwaveringly so, that God was able in the midst of his inability. God could do it when he couldn't. And God has done it in the souls of those who have believed. And the righteousness that we are incapable of has been bestowed and imputed from the account of another who has a full, abundant, never-ending supply of that righteousness. Out of that account, he has accounted it to us who are insufficient in those funds. He's given as a gift. See, that's what the new covenant guaranteed. The guarantee to the seed is by grace. Those who sought it by law did not attain, but those who sought it by faith through grace did attain it. That's what Paul said.
See, Abraham was designed and placed in a condition that demanded a trust and a power of another. So are we. I don't know how we get away from that idea. I don't know how we get away with finally thinking we've arrived to a point where we're now capable in some way. That instead of a covenant, we have a contract where both sides are equally able to keep their sides of the bargain and are able to equally disperse the activities and actions that make that contract valid. No, a covenant means one party is strong enough to overcome the weakness of the other. That's a covenant. That's what we have. The party that made the covenant knew that he was making it with somebody weaker. <laughs> Someone who was incapable. So the ongoing presence of the need is there, but the supply is also there. See, See we're taught From the inception, from new birth, the intent toward God is to work in us, to fortify us to a point where we are capable, able, productive, productive citizens, soldiers in the army of God. We're told that God formed these vessels so that these vessels can be a direct reflection or manifestation of the power and strength of the divine source it has within it. But that's not true. The fact is we have this treasure in vessels of clay so that it can be made known that this is of God and not of us. There'd be no question. <laughs> in fact, it's written like there should be no doubt. And it was so there'd be no doubt, but all of us doubt that because we're still looking for the vessel to finally get equal to the treasure. They're not the same. They're not the same. This is a gift. This is mercy extended. This is the kindness of God. And it is the fullness and extent of this kindness that God is going to make known to the church forever. And this is what he says. It is not from you as a source. This is from the Weiss translation of Ephesians 2.8. This is not from you as a source. Because of God, it is the gift. Not from a source of works in order that no one can boast. See, if you think, if we think, that we are given the ability in this instead of given a gift that is, that is sufficient in the midst of our inability, then we assume that maybe now, maybe later, we'll have some legitimate ground to glory in what we have done, what we have accomplished. We can look at ourselves and especially look at ourselves when compared to our brothers and sisters and see we have really, overstepped and overshot where they are. We have two stars. They only have one. But see, Paul writes that we're justified his, by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ. And he says, so what becomes of our boasting? Because our works didn't do it. 
And God sent him to be our righteousness and be declared the righteousness of those who would believe. So then where is your boasting? What ground do you have for glory? It is excluded, shut out forever. But what law excludes such boasting? Not the law of works, but the law of faith. This is what he's talking about when he says it is by grace through faith, that not of yourself. We have something we can only boast in the Lord about. We have a reality that is not ever turned in our direction for any way, shape, or form. And the moment it does, you better think again. Let me read, there's a couple of other places here, but I want you to notice that the, the copious amount of times that these terms are written just in the confines of these verses, I want you to notice this. Who is God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, that in the ages to come he would show the exceeding riches of his grace. In his kind. I mean, just think of the language, man. His great love, his his richness in mercy, his exceeding riches. I mean, man, what you're what he's describing there is something so far beyond and above anything we can ask or think. Now, to stop this, as we said, our barrenness is never ended. We bear fruit unto God, not because we're able to. We bear fruit because we are married to the husband who is the fruit of the spirit. He does it. He's the fruit. Nothing you do. It's just who he is. In fact, when you look at, uh, and I, you know, I just brought up a while ago, the penny and the wage and, the workers in the vineyard, you notice going, if you look at the Greek, when he goes out and he hires these people and everyone, but the first, it says he went out and found those who were idle. The word idle in the Greek actually means barren. He found the barren. Well, it didn't, he didn't have to look for, I mean, that's all God came to is barren those who had no productiveness in themselves, no way to produce anything God was after, he came to the barren. Yeah, he called them to his vineyard. That's, that's the reality of the salvation of, of our soul. But let me show you a rebuke <laughs> that Paul gave. And I read this a couple days ago, and it just floored me. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He's rebuking the Corinthians who are seeing themselves in a little higher light than they should and believing themselves better than, than others or some in the Corinthian church better than the others. But these are Christians he's talking to here. Now, this will reflect very, very... Uh, this, this is a perfect parallel to what he says in Romans 3 when he speaks to the Jews and says, what, are we better than them, speaking of Gentiles? No, in no way at all. It's the same 
idea. But here specifically, he's talking to Christians and he says this in verse, and I'm reading this from the, uh, I don't know why I did it, but the net Bible, first Corinthians four, seven through eight, for who concedes you any superiority? What a question. Who made you God? You ever heard that? Who made you better than anybody else? Who concedes that you are superior to anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as though you did not? My God, what a rebuke. Why? Do you think you have something of your own? Do you think any of this belongs to you so that you can say you are up here and others are down or you're superior to another who is in the same body you are? Remember, the same penny was given to all. Do you think you have something more? Do you think you've arrived at something greater? Do you look down on those who are in Christ because you think you've ascended to some greater level? Who conceded you any superiority? What do you have that you didn't receive? As a gift, some would say as a gift of God, because if you receive that gift, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it, as if it didn't come from somebody else to your hands? He's talking about spiritual things here, not natural things. He's talking about salvation and the things pertaining to it. Who do you think you are? God gave to all the same, and God gave it. That's the whole point. What do you have? that didn't come from God as its source? What do you have before God that you didn't receive as a gift? And since you did receive it, receive it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it as a gift? <coughs> they were received. So in a language which does not use rhetorical questions, which is the Greek translator would say here, God has given you everything that you have. So why are you boasting like you earned it? Who are you to boast? See, this is the mindset. This is where there's no boasting. This is the mindset that keeps away the pharisaical leaven. This is the understanding that makes us all fall upon the rock and lean on the sufficiency of another and realize that that dependence never ends because our weakness never ends, but much more so his sufficient supply never runs out. It is new every morning. It is as copious as it was the first day. Your vessel will never run low because this is a gift 
and God doesn't take his gift back. You don't have something on layaway. So you get to make the final payment. See, the levels and the filters of all this spiritual elevations by which we judge ourselves among ourselves, it just, it just exposes just how minute our view of God really is and how great the view of ourselves is. It exposes the ground of your boasting and whether or not you are yet supposing that you are an equal party to your soul's state of being and condition. And if your state before God is a provision given of God, a provision of his kindness or a payment given to you for your labor. What do you possess is not a gift from God, sourced of God himself, given of God himself, not one thing. And this, this statement comes a couple of chapters after he has just told them, of God are you in Christ, who is made unto you that no flesh should glory in his presence, that he that glories let him glory in the Lord. And this is exactly, he's carrying out this same thing, now directing it toward them and saying, why are you boasting in anything like you are the source of it? Guys, it is the good news that we have received a reality in which we can't boast in. We can boast in the God who has provided it, but we can't boast in the fact that we've done anything to attain it or deserve it, or to keep it. Our boast is in him, and his grace, in his sufficiency. And I believe as we grow in the understanding, as he unfolds the, the, the bountiful riches of his grace to us throughout this succeeding ages of time, eternally, we'll become greater and greater aware of just how of God and not of us this has always been. Just how having God as the source of all is good news and just how good it is. <laughs> Amen. Amen. So I am um, stopping there for tonight. Amen. Amen. Raven. Yes, ma'am. I think you mentioned something um, that Abraham glorified God. Can you expound on that? Well, I mean, it, it just says he gave glory to God. And I think the whole, the whole premise of that shows that it was the way he writes it is in the midst of his weakness, in the midst of the barrenness of Sarah, in the midst of not having a seed, not being able to figure out a way that this could possibly be. You remember in, Genesis 15, he asked him, so how is this going to be? How is this going to come about? Because he told him, I, you know, what was going to happen. And it was right before that, that it said he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. But he asked right after that, he says, so how will these things come to pass? And God showed him, but he showed him in the, you know, the, the, the pot and the torch walking through the pieces of the animals together and cutting a covenant. You're basically showing him the work of the father and the son, the covenant of uh, the new covenant, basically. 
and the work of the cross and how all that would happen, that it was nothing he's doing that would do this because again, he was, he was put aside in that. I think that has a lot to do with it yet in the midst of, I don't have a seed. My wife is barren and I'm old. How in the world is this going to happen? But in the midst of that, what seems to be a contradiction and really was, it's like, that's why he says in a, against hope, he had hope because it seemed like a hopeless situation, but he still had expectation that the God alone could perform it. So he glorified God in the midst of his weakness. That's beautiful. Most of us like to glorify that is beautiful. God. Most of us like to glorify God when we think we've got it. <laughs> you know, or we figured it out, or we think we've carried it out, or we know there's a way, we have a way figured out, you know, or you know, God makes it easy for us. We, you know, whatever. We glorify God then. So, oh, thank you, God. But when God said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations and your wife is barren, how in the world? Yet a man can trust God's sufficiency enough to understand my weakness doesn't determine what he can do. Yes. My barrenness mm. doesn't determine his power. Yes. They're, they're not equal. I have no power to determine what God is and what he does. That's not, it's not in my ability and people who think they can, that's the issue. You think you can, you think you can lessen your salvation by what you do. You think you can do this or that and, you know, hurt God's feelings or whatever. God's not us. Yeah. Thank God. We, yeah. We, we put, <laughs> we put human attributes on God. Hmm. And we try to bring it down to our level where we can figure him out. Well, you can't figure God out. <laughs> Amen. He's bigger than you. Uh, John, while we, were in South Carolina, while we were in South Carolina, he did a session, and I'm going to share it because he's going to record it. Uh, it. It didn't get recorded in South Carolina. The recorder messed up. But he's he's going to redo it for me. Hint, hint. And uh, <laughs> he dealt with that. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. How mm. different is it as the heavens are above the earth? That's different. Beneath and above are different. It's not just different locations. It's different universes. It's different creation. As the scripture shows it to be. That's a vast difference. And we try to bring him down to the earth to figure him out. No. That's why that's why the grace and the kindness and the salvation of God just sounds too good for men. Why? Because we want to earn it. Right. We think if we don't earn it, we, you know, it's cheap. It's cheap, you know. I didn't do anything for it. It's cheap. No. It's good. It's kindness. Because whatever you do won't scratch the surface at, at what needed to be done to render your soul alive and not dead. Do we think we actually have that much power? And again, that's the arrogance that we have to think that we can up, up, uproot salvation by a thought that we think or a word that we say. We might think that that's, you know, us being trying to be holy, but that's you being arrogant enough to think you have power over God. 
think you're stronger than him. They're able to uproot what he has wrought. That isn't going to happen. Amen. God doesn't need you to keep him. <laughs> Amen. He keeps you. <laughs> I'm glad that cart got in the right position behind the horse. <laughs> <laughs> So that, to me, that's why he, you know, the significance of he glorified God because he did it in the midst of his barrenness or his his impotence and all of that. But he glorified God who he knew was sufficient to handle. So was that glorification or glorified God? Is that like um, magnified him? Yeah, but I know faith? how. Yeah, well, I know how people have done, you know, you magnify God, make him bigger. Hey. That's a bunch of jump uh you know. <laughs> yeah i mean that's that does it that's not at all what it means it just means to see him as bigger than you you know yes to to say god i know you are when i'm not that's glorifying god it yeah. is able to to point out the the fact that this mm -hmm. there is a reality greater than myself yes I can glory something. I can glorify that. I can, I can look at that as it. And that's why in the midst of my nothingness, I can look and say, but he is all. And that way, you know, when I do see, cause I do a lot, see the shortcomings. He's great enough to overcome that momentary lapse where I've looked at me and I thought something was wrong. And then he says, Nope, nothing wrong with me. And notice what he didn't say. He didn't say there's nothing wrong with you. Yeah. He said, nothing wrong with me. <laughs> because that's where it settled. Because if it was about me, there's a lot wrong there. Um, now, not as to my soul, not as to my condition, but again, that's not what I did. It's who he, who he is. He did that. But if I think in a way that that is somehow dependent upon my works, my ability, you know, through the years, I think I should have arrived to this point. Well, that's you. You think that you, you know, we put those expectations on ourselves. God's smart enough not to have any expectations of me. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard thing to swallow. Yeah. But God doesn't have any expectations of you. The the true expectation God's had of you, guess what? We've met them. Amen. His expectation was man is evil continually. Yeah. He knew that. And we mm -hmm. met him. Just like that. We met that expectation pretty, pretty handily. Yeah. So God's not foolish enough to expect from us. That's why he had to give to us something that he expects. I like that. Amen. Amen. I was foolish a lot of times. I expected a lot <laughs> from me. Yeah. I think we all did. <laughs> of course. And we still do a lot of it. Yeah. And, uh, it's It's unfortunate. But, and, you know, even hearing this, some would say, you know, you should expect to get better. I don't have a problem with you getting better as a human being or a person. I'm 
that's not the issue. I mean, we all strive to be better. I don't want to punch people at, out, you know, when I see them. That's good. I'll stop doing that. <laughs> um, <laughs> except for John every now and then. <laughs> I just, you know, that's not an issue, but that's not spiritual. That's not a spiritual matter. And we, we conflate spiritual and natural things. Why? Because we do that to be able to, in some way, frame spiritual things in the context of natural things, try to understand them, mm -hmm. uh, try to get a grasp on them. But what we do is we to totally lose the truth of them. You know, all the definitions we have that are spiritual Christian definitions are not definitions of God. They're not God's definition of any of them. Righteousness. Okay. Ask anybody. Ask a million Christians. What does that mean? Get ready for 900,000 different definitions. God only has one. And that's what I mean. <laughs> you know, it, we bring it down here. God keeps it up here. And he says to the soul that is up here, look, see my definition. And then you won't be down here groveling all over the planet, trying to figure out men's definition. So you can do that and mm -hmm. live that and be that. That's a waste of time, energy. And uh, yeah, I don't have the time for it. Thank you guys for being on tonight. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. 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 Thank you.